Now the shotgun start in golf is full of mathematics. Um, there's a lot of a lot of setup work that we have to do in order to make a tournament work. So I'm going to demonstrate to you just exactly how we do a shotgun start here. And here we go. All right, all right, all right. Gentlemen, start your Greetings and welcome to a special spotlight edition of the Shotgun Start. It is U.S. Open week. Andy, how are we doing? Brendan, I'm doing. Uh, I'm doing awesome. I can't wait. This it's is fantastic. A, this is kind of the week of the year. I feel like. I think yeah, we still have Masters to go, but it really feels like a different level of excitement and anticipation. Just. I don't know. Obviously, the delay has a little bit to do with it. The venue has a lot to do with it. The you know time of year seeing this venue in this setting, time of year has a lot to do with it. And obviously, being deprived of major championship golf for the first you know six seven months of the year has something to do with it. But it's my anticipation level. I don't think it's ever been higher for U.S. Open. Yeah, that's. I think the venue has so much to do with it. Obviously, sure. it's delivered in almost every iteration of uh, of championship yeah. golf at Wingfoot. And yep. this year, with all the run up of you know great play during the restart from great the great world's best players, it just adds to it. And uh, I think it's it's going to be really interesting to see how you know 2006, the last time Wingfoot hosted yep. golf, is dramatically different since then. You know, right, three, right. three reading books, track man, <laughs> 460cc heads, and. Uh, I think that's that's something that you know one of the major storylines is going to be see see if this golf course that has constantly yielded just unrelenting tests of golf can can hold up. Yeah, it's fantastic. We will talk about that quite a bit this week. As as you can imagine, we'll have probably extra episodes sprinkled in throughout. You know, probably after every day. And on the topic of that 06 Wingfoot. We have our old spotlight on 06 with, you know, some commentary from Jeff Ogilvy, the broadcast um, and sort of our usual back and forth on some of the amusing fashion and anities and some of the forgotten Monty's fiasco, things like that. That was in April. So go back and find that one. Jim to get Furyk's your... full button down shirt and <laughs> maybe the worst putt ever in major championship golf <laughs> uh, on, the, on the back nine. That's something. 15, right. Yeah. yeah. Padraig Harrington just shitting the bed coming down the stretch. <laughs> so that was mid-April. I highly recommend that as a appetizer for the week. And I recommend what we're about to do as this, this extra bonus spotlight to kind of really get you in the mood. We welcome Kevin Robbins, who is a professor at Texas, author. A book came out last year, The Last Stand of Payne Stewart. Um, in the year that golf changed forever. It's on Pinehurst, 1999. Also, Payne's obviously life, career, death. Kevin read the whole 1400 page, you know, NTSB report on the plane. Cra- like there's a lot around Payne Stewart. Um, he spoke on him with great depth, much better than we could. They, we did our research, but you know, it, so we decided to kind of let Kevin go with our rambling, stupid questions intermixed in between. And, and that's going to be the guts of this uh, part one. We'll probably was, do yeah, further. I would say this is part one of our yep. paint Stewart flat uh, spotlight. I'm yep. getting all the lights confused now. Pen light, flashlight, spotlight. This yeah. is a spotlight Key for light. sure. 
<laughs> no, but Kevin's great. He handles every question really well and kind of goes into great Do depth. Do you remember Let's... when laser, those laser point pens came out? Yeah. Were we, we were in like grade school then. Yeah, yeah. You get deep, deep doo-doo if you brought one to school, right? You know, <laughs> yeah. it's being a little twerp, flashing it all over the chalkboard and things like that. Uh, all right, let's get into Payne Stewart's nuts and bolts of his career. What do you have for should us? Should we do an ad read? Oh, gosh. Yes. Yes, we should. So these bonus spotlights, whether it's 06, 07, Oakmont, Bubba Dickerson, are brought to you by the U.S. Open Victory Club. Good week. Good week to join the Victory Club. This is the week to join the Victory Club. You can do that at usopen.com slash victory club. And there, by joining the club, you get different, you know, discounts on merchandise throughout the year. You get exclusive US Open content, virtual fan experiences, which is important because there's no fans on the ground this week due to the pandemic. Uh, Just other offers and discounts. Uh, and events at the championship and throughout the year when you if you were to go when they allow fans and we have a special special we do little have giveaway. A special giveaway. This what do you? Wh- this is for the shotgunners, fried eggheads, fried you know? eggheads, yokels. Is, uh, yeah, the the USGA is going to give away four ticket packages and that's sets of two tickets for Saturday and Sunday of next year's U.S. Open at Torrey Pines. I mean, bring bring a friend, bring the missus, bring bring the mister, the mister? bring, yeah, bring the girlfriend, bring the significant other, yeah. uh, bring them out to Torrey Pines, San Diego in June. Maybe and- bring JB, ask JB Holmes if he'll walk around with the, with you, Torrey, show you like what the liberating on each shot, 18. He might be a good guest if, if he'll oblige. So- and all you have to do is sign up for the Victory Club and it's free. And you'll get all the perks of the week of, and you just have to mark, you have to answer podcasts to the question, how did you hear about the Victory Club? And that'll get you entered. So don't answer, you know, piece of mail, you know, and, you know, mailer or, you know, Andy or Brendan shouting about just say podcast. That's how you heard about it. Okay. So two tickets, Saturday and Sunday, four tickets overall. Not bad. Pretty good giveaway. That's not bad. I I can do that. I, I'm hoping to be there. One of the, my biggest bummers of this year is not uh-huh. getting to attend the U.S. Open uh, this week. Obviously, we, with the baby, couldn't couldn't leave. But yep. if I, if any other circumstance, I would have been there. This it's a bummer, but you know, virtually you can be there with the uh, Victory Club. Oh, look at that! For professional ad rate there. I, I agree. It's it's a great way to enhance sort of the week. It's usopen.com slash victory club thanks to them for sponsoring all right Payne stewart nuts and bolts what you got for his career all right we're gonna start this off with our little rundown Payne stewart he was uh-huh. born at springfield missouri uh-huh he att- did you see the high school he attended or, or the k through 12 school what it was called it's some fancy name right the greenwood laboratory school oh so he's in the lab sounds fancy lab school <laughs> I mean, really, he went to SMU, too. This is yeah. kind of like Bryson before Bryson, maybe. <laughs> maybe. And, and maybe just a sane version of Bryson. Maybe sane. There was the story about him walking around with acupuncture needles in his ears because they keep his balance. Remember that? We lit that oh, one yeah. of the masters, flashlights or spotlights, whatever. A, I think it was the Heritage we did. A, yeah. Well, the Heritage we did a, uh, we did a 
Flashback Friday on Pain and his Mr. Avis title. Yes. So that's yeah. another spot you can get a little bit more Pain context if you're looking um. for it. Um, so he, he, his father was a really good player. Played He qualified for the 55 U.S. Open. Uh, Payne played in SMU. He uh, he didn't get his card right after. One thing school. on his dad, yeah. which I thought was cool. He won Missouri State Amateur events. And I think the one year he moved up to senior. And he and Payne won. Payne won the Amateur Open, uh, the U- Missouri Amateur title. And his dad won the senior Amateur title. It's pretty that's, cool. That's so, pretty cool. Very cool. Yeah. All right, sorry to interrupt. He's at SMU. That's almost like uh, the Duvall uh, story, but on a uh, you know winning the players and the senior tour event. Yeah, that's a good point. But on yeah. a smaller scale. A little bit. Yep. And yep. not on the same day, I assume. No, uh, probably not. <laughs> they same probably were year. both in that amateur field, though. It could be. Could be same year. All right, so All he, right. he didn't get his card right after, so he went and played in, on the Asian tour for two years, right after school. Yep. So that's kind of neat. A little I think bit he met different. his wife there too, right? Australian, Tracy. I think he met her over there, one of yeah. those Asian tour stops. So, okay. He won twice on the Asian tour, and then he, uh, he got his PGA Tour card in 82. He won as a rookie at the Quad Cities. Same, okay. same tournament that uh, Ed Fiore, the, the grip one. <laughs> the gripper. Gripper. That was the only win his dad saw. Uh, his dad passed away from, I think, myeloma, multiple myeloma. So that, that's a big theme throughout his career, you know, uh, playing for his dad, who, who only got to see him win once. A okay. couple other notes. He finished runner-up at the 85 Open, won by Sandy, Sleepy Sandy Lyle, another <laughs> spotlight uh, person. And, uh, Subject. He, it yeah. was one of his, uh, one of his two... Uh, open championship runner-ups. Okay, he was okay. He was one of the Americans that played a lot internationally and played internationally. Played very well internationally. Um, in '86, he had 16 top tens with no wins. <laughs> Who is that? Fino? Maybe Fino territory. It's that maybe is even greater than Fino territory. Oh. pretty unbelievable yeah you think about yeah. like what we would say about somebody that did that now and i think that that's where he he, he got that avis fan the, the yep. avis uh moniker always runner-up i think he had four runner-ups that year um he had an insane amount of runner-ups and we'll get to that five Ryder cup appearances which i feel like five is a is a number of sig that signals all-timer yep longevity staying power yeah yeah, uh, unfortunately, I think, right. I think Zatch might have five. <laughs> the Paint Stewart Award winner this year. Yeah, yeah, can't get can't get off the spotlight without taking a shot at Zatch, I suppose. So, <laughs> uh, top ten in the OWGR for just about two hundred and fifty weeks. Highest rank I saw was third in nineteen ninety. Yep. Um, yep. He had t- total 20 worldwide wins. I took out the three skins games out of that. <laughs> okay. Eight okay. of which were PGA Tour wins, one European Tour win, and three major championship wins. I did not count major championships in the Tour wins. Sorry, one PGA thing- Tour. They are not your tournaments. <laughs> That's true. One thing on the Avis thing, he started 0-5 in playoffs, I saw. Yeah. You know, through the mid to late 80s. So that like kind of really built, contributed to that top 10 thing, not getting that done in playoffs. So, all right. Um, From 86 to 99, which is one of the OWGR stats, he had 10 wins, but 25 runner-ups. <laughs> 
So I had his I had his ten year peak. It was hard to pick his ten year peak um, because his major championships had you know they they stretched eleven years, yeah, which is always tricky. What you yep. what do you do? Mm-hmm. Uh, but ten year peak on the tour, I took eighty six to ninety five. Uh, he had two hundred and eighty four starts, eight wins, nineteen runner ups, thirteen thirds, and fifty one other top 10 finishes unbelievable i mean 19 runner-ups <laughs> insane it's so uh, maybe this is a legacy discussion but for someone whose life was taken from him so young there's a lot of longevity oh, right yeah. a ton of i mean he was so close so before getting that first major so often he had you know maybe uh, eight top tens and majors before he got that first one a lot of longevity for you know a career that was ended very short 40 42 so you figure yeah. he had at least three or four more good years and we saw some players of his ilk such as a kenny perry have a really good run in their 40s vj yeah. had a really good run in their 40s and given the equipment debacle which i'm sure we'll touch on heavily when we get our full when we do our full spotlight uh-huh. um that really took away Five, yep. four or five years in the middle yep. of his prime. Yep. Um, you, it makes you wonder what if. It's, it's a big what if. <laughs> and I mean, Kevin speaks to this quite a bit in the interview, too. I mean, that was part of the why he chose this book, The Last Stand. This he was paying was, I won't ruin it. He was like the last guy born before 1960, right? Those last great shapers, I think, as Kevin calls them. He used the old balls and clubs. So, uh, yeah, a great what if. How would he have adjusted and adapted? Yeah, you know, going into his forties. So. Um, ten-year peak in the majors, eighty-four to ninety-three, which is okay. a bummer. Because either way, if you go eighty-five to ninety, like you, either way, you you slice the majors. If you go up to get all, you can't. Yep. You have to give up one year, which is I gave up ninety-nine, which he had a good year, but yep. he he had a better year in eighty-five. And, okay, and um, okay. so thirty-nine starts, two wins. Three runner-ups, three other top fives, seventeen total top tens, and six missed cuts. So he's getting right there where he's close to that fifty percent top ten percentage in majors. He historically was abysmal at the Masters. Bad, not good, not good. Kevin I wonder if it was the well. distance thing where people talk about the hills at Augusta, and if you there's that. <laughs> That number, and I, you know, obviously it's changed over time. Where if you hit it a certain number, you catch the downslopes of all the hills, and if you don't uh, hit it that number, you hit it into the upslopes, and it just makes it ridiculously long. Ke- well, Kevin alludes to the putting too. He yeah. never figured out that, and they were wondering, like, he finally got the Seymour putter, right? That worked wonders for him at Pinehurst. What could have been maybe had he the Zatch putter? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just on top of that, before '99 Pinehurst, this little nugget. So he's not good at the Masters, but he was like this era's U.S. Open player. Um, so going into Pinehurst 99, he led more rounds of the championship 11 than any other player in history, but only had that one title. You know, got clipped by Lee Jansen twice, 93-98. Uh, so a real U.S. Open kind of legend. One other side note, anecdote. Mm-hmm. would be remiss not to mention his music, music career. Sure. Not quite, not quite Jumbo Ozaki's career, where he's top in the charts in Japan, but a career nonetheless. Played harmonica 
in the Blues Rock Group, Jake Trout and the Flounders. There you go. With fellow golfers, this is the golf boys before the golf boys, Larry <laughs> Rinker and Peter Jacobson. <laughs> they released an album, I Love to Play, in 98. There you go. Jake Trout and the, what is it? Flounders. Flounders. Okay, so he was a flounder, harmonica player. Yeah, right. harmonica okay. player. All right. All right. So that's that's the nuts and bolts of, of Payne Stewart's career. Okay. So a qu- couple things. Why Payne? Why this U.S. Open? So Kevin will go into all this. Pinehurst, obviously. So it was pre-restoration, right? But a lot of players talked about how different it was from everything they had seen at the U.S. Open until that point. Even Phil had this, some quote, 90-90 played in a f- handful of them by 99. He said, this is the first U.S. Open that really tests my full game. You had... The rough was shorter by their standards. Three inches, they cut it. The backs were shaved. You know, the the areas around the green were shaved. You have Donald Ross greens. Um, And this is on YouTube, right? This is on uh, USGA's YouTube channel, USGA app. It's a quick, under two-hour compact thing, similar to that wing foot. I would highly recommend it, watching this. Um, So Pinehurst, fantastic. Scott Verplank called it borderline sadistic. Uh, Tiger on the first hole. His first chip was from the left side of the green. His fourth shot was from the right side of the green. David, du- David Duvall failed to hold the green twice from five yards. Um, Chris Perry crawled, got down on all fours and crawled up the 18th fairway on his last day, his last round, and waved a white towel. Um, John Daly, this was where he infamously did, you know, hit the ball. It was rolling back at him. A year after the bucket boy, Kurt Triplett did it at 18 at... Uh, Olympic and, and daily I've had it with the USGA. I've never seen a course play so unfair the last two days. It got really windy and firm on the weekend after some rain earlier in the week. So this is just a cool watch for Pinehurst, obviously. Um, also tiger is in full effect. This was two months after he told Butch on the range. He's like, I got it. I found it. Butch. I think it was at the Nelson or something. And you know, it's right before he wins Medina and goes on that legendary 2000 open ton of lip outs. So it's awesome watch just to Lots see Tiger. Outs, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's awesome to see Tiger whip up the crowd. And Tim Heron, his playing partner, was like, I thought for sure he was going to win. Um, David Duvall dealing like right in the middle of his legendary season, although he singed his fingers on like a, a hot pot. Like that was a big issue going into it. So you have Duvall, Tiger dealing, Phil on the up and up. VJ Singh makes a Sunday run. It's just all the heavyweights and then Payne Stewart with this cross-generational battle. So I would recommend watching the video. And last but not least, Johnny and Roger Maltby are absolutely just like dealing in this. It's, it's so fascinating to watch given what we complain about a lot these days with fluff and cliches. Like for the hardcore golf fan, watching this is just a complete treat. Like every little thing about the it's, lie, yeah, how no. it will play. You, and then he goes to Roger Maltby's like finishing a sentence, talking about the sand and how compact it is and how this could come off the, the, you know, the, the toe, all this stuff. It's just every shot, every situation. They're so on top of it. I think you'll really like it. It's, it's a era, a era of golf without uh, someone with a big fat thumb on the scale dictating <laughs> to the broadcast how it needs to be talked about. So anyways, that doesn't need any hyping. I just thought it was interesting to provide that refresher. One more thing before we get to Kevin, since it's U.S. Open week. 
I got to run through some amusing tidbits of the 1991 U.S. Open. That a little Payne appetizer. Payne won at Hazeltine while we're celebrating the U.S. Open. So it was a total bore. Hazeltine. Oh, big surprise. Not celebration. So it was Scott Simpson and Payne Stewart that essentially in a 36-hole playoff. They were the only, no one came within three shots on Sunday. They finished tied. I read a Rick Riley gamer. He's just like, oh, my God, we got to come back and do 18 holes again. Um, and the playoff was a total pillow fight. Stewart shot a 75. It was the worst winning score in a U.S. playoff since 1927. And there were 30 playoffs since 1901. But he was two shots better than Simpson. So not the most thrilling uh, U.S. Open at Hazeltine. This was also the infamous where lightning struck a tree. And as uh, Rick Riley said, a group of people were huddling under it and the bolt hit. Um, it felt like people fell like bowling pins. Six got up, five were hospitalized, and one, Bill Fidel, 27, died. Oh, man. Yeah, not, not good. a good situation. Um, last other, one other inanity, <laughs> the shrinks. Big roll. There was shrink uh, turf wars. So what? Corey Pavin, <laughs> yeah, Corey Pavin, the PGA Tour's leading money winner at the time, was doomed from the start because Payne Stewart had kidnapped Quote, quoting Rick Riley, his mental masseuse, oh. Dr. Richard Coop, a sports psychologist. Coop and Stewart had a contract that says Coop has to stay with Stewart during the four majors. And Pavin was reduced to phoning Stewart's house at night for therapy sessions. Oh, my God. Leading money winner. <laughs> They're battling over the shrinks. And then last but not least, this is great. Nolan Hankey led after 18 holes. Uh, so he's, he's 67. Stewart's opening around 67. Nolan Hankey. Tied, or I'm sorry, tied Nolan Hankey for the first round lead. Though nobody was silk screening Nolan Hankey wins the U.S. Open t-shirts, especially when somebody asked him on Thursday, are you surprised to be here and can you win? Replied Hankey, very surprised and no. <laughs> <laughs> That's the type of attitude that we look for. Somebody clarified, no, you can't win? He goes, well, I guess if everybody else breaks their leg. <laughs> Unbelievable. He's got the 18-hole lead. So anyways, that was a little bit on 1991 Hazeltine I had to share before Nolan we go. Nolan Hankey. Very surprised and no, I cannot win. We might have to have, we might have to start doing <laughs> a thing that, you know, on Fridays. Who's the Nolan Hankey on the leaderboard? <laughs> that's a good point. That's, that's a good idea. The, Hankey, right. the Hankey Award. We're going to so, start that this week. All right, let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, so that is a little bit on Payne Stewart's first U.S. Open win. We'll go into more when we do a second part spotlight. Let's get to Kevin. Again, we've hyped up his book. He's a great guest, cleaned it up a little bit. But other than that, we thought it was worth it just to let him let him run with it. He, he gives you all you need to know about Payne and Pinehurst. We are now joined by Kevin Robbins, professor at University of Texas, Austin. Also, but more pertinent for this discussion, he is the author of The Last Stand of Payne Stewart, The Year Golf Changed Forever. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us and being gracious with your time. Oh, so glad to be here. Thanks, Brendan and a, Andy. A, a real expert. Well... <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see about that. <laughs> Someone who's put in the work that makes these spotlights look like, you know, little easy first grade homework assignments. How long did you spend on the book, by the way? How much, what was the research process for that actually? Oh, so uh, that's a really cool question because I was in my, um, 
my narrative reporting class yesterday at UT, and we were talking about how long it took this reporter to write a story. And uh, the reporter's reply to uh, how long he had taken was uh, either four days or 20 years. And, <laughs> and it, so what he was saying was, you know, like his whole life experience had gone into writing that story. Um, and so, uh, you know, not to be too like high-minded about it, but it, it took me about three years uh, start to finish, like from researching the, the proposal to publication day. Um, but, you know, like a life in golf informed uh that book. And so, um, somewhere between three years and 25 years, let's say. Okay. What, what's the, I'm always curious about this. What's the hardest, I the thought of, I have ADD and I just get scatterbrained. I'll, I'll be doing one thing and I think of four other things that I start. I'm a, I, I start tons of things and I rarely finish anything. What's the hardest, what was the hardest part of the three years? What phase of the book was the hardest part? Um, that's a good question. Uh, because I, I feel like I'm a little bit like you in that way. Uh, I'm pretty scattered also, uh, something happens though. So to answer your question, probably, um, starting, starting the writing, you know, like you got to pick a place to start and then you got to commit to that. Um, and, and in this case with this book, I started at the beginning, which is unlike my, my previous book where I started in the middle. Um, but something happened, something happens to me when I'm doing a book and, and usually I have a hard time sitting still for very long because I think about, you know, doing other things, but something kind of takes over and I'm usually not a very disciplined person, but, but when I'm well into writing the book, I find myself getting up early and like getting after it at eight o'clock in the morning and sitting there for, and then I don't quit until I, I give myself a three hour window, that first window and every day. And then I take a break and I have something to eat, maybe take a walk. And then I come back to it for two hours and then I'm done for the day. Um, so it's five hours a day of, of writing for me. And sometimes if like I'm really in a cool section, I might uh, return to it in the evening just to have a look at what I wrote that day and make sure I like it. Um, but I, I, the, the hardest part is uh, getting those first words down because it's important like tone and temperature um, just like the feel of it all. And, uh, I wish I were, I were like those really professional writers who could just like sit down and w not worry about it get a draft completed and then go back and, and touch it up. And, and, uh, but those early words are really important to me. So I, I can't really keep going until I know what those are. Not uh, um, I, you know, we're getting into more of your professor life than the specific pains to her life, but I, I love hearing this. What, so what was the research process? How many interviews did you do? What was one that maybe was particularly revelatory or, or surprising that you did not anticipate going into when at the end of the research process, you look back on, wow, that became a key and informative um, piece of research that I maybe didn't expect. And then obviously the larger holistic approach, how much work went into it in, in terms of research. Yeah. Uh, so um, I did count the number of interviews and I, I think it's 82. Uh, it's in the book in the, in the notes section. Um, yeah. so I think I did 82 individual interviews. Um, oh, you know what, Brendan, it was, it was a hundred and something with 82 individuals. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, so some people I did twice. And um, the nice thing about this story was there, there was so much uh, primary research already there in front of me. 
Um, and I have access to great databases at UT. So, uh, so much written and broadcast that's there available uh, about pain and, and about 1999. Um, I, I, I wanted to be careful not to ask people questions that I already knew the answer to or that they had already answered. So, um, because there was so much on the record about Stuart and his life in that year, um, all I was searching for really was uh, was stuff that that I hadn't heard already, you know. Um, uh, so um, I had a guy. His name's Lamar Haynes. He played golf with Stuart at SMU and remained his his lifelong friend. In fact, Lamar has the the Mizuno irons that were on board the Learjet that uh, that Payne was was flying in when he went down in in October of that year. They were uh, they were very close friends, uh, lifelong friends. He was kind of like my the guy on my shoulder the whole time. Who he was reading over my shoulder. In other words, I'd, I'd finish a chapter, I'd send it to him. Um, so he was definitely the most important uh, person to the book. But the the most revelatory interview really was was Paul Azinger, and he was he was the last one to commit to doing the interview an interview for this book. Um, and you know, I had to go through agents, and that was really hard. And Paul kept, uh, through his agent, kept denying an interview. Um, finally, man, like something happened. He Something broke loose and he agreed to do it. I had to fly to, to, to Bradenton. It was a one-day thing. I met him at Bradenton Country Club. And I remember sitting across a table, uh, like the, the Board of Governors table at, at the Country Club. And Paul rolled in. He's like getting ready to go fishing. Uh, wearing a Hawaiian shirts and, and flip-flops. And, and I told him the premise of the book. And I'd been telling his agent this, not to trash his agent, but I'd been telling his agent this for, for eight months, you know. Uh, and Paul, Paul told me he didn't, he didn't realize that I, I wanted to do what I wanted to do with the book, which was not like regurgitate October 25th, 1999, the day the plane went down. Paul thought I was just interested in talking to him about that day. And when he realized that I wanted to have, have like this long look at, at Stewart's life, in some ways a reappraisal, uh, then he just completely opened up. And um, he told me things about their relationship I didn't know. And uh, the thing that stuck with me the most, and I think is really poignant, is when Paul got diagnosed with cancer, his friends kind of fell away. This is really like the nature of male friendship, I think, in sports. Uh, sometimes the media, and I'm complicit here, will um, characterize friendships as being almost like a brotherhood. And, um, and maybe that's true in some, in some instances, but it really wasn't that way with Paul and Payne. And I'm not sure that Payne Stewart was actually capable of a friendship of that depth. You know, yeah. they were like, they were like bros. They were like college pals. They knocked around together. They drank together, but they didn't, you know, they didn't really have like soul touching conversation. However, when Paul got diagnosed with cancer and all of his other friends sort of didn't know what to do with that and kind of fell away, Stuart did not. And he would drive over occasionally from Orlando to Tampa. They would get in Paul's boat and they would go out fishing and they would drink and swear and just like be dumbasses like guys are. Uh, but that meant something to, to, to Paul, to Azinger. You know, he remembered that. Like he needed somebody, just companionship and presence and fellowship at that time. And that's what Stuart provided him it's interesting that when you think about like the pga tour is like they they don't have teammates per se but 
when they're peers, they are friends, but they're also competitors. And it's a it's a different dynamic than almost any other sport like you kind of touched on. And I yeah. think it, it makes it easier for them to fall away, you know, when somebody's not there every week. Because that's yeah. you know they don't have to schedule their time to see each other they they see each other on the range you know it's you know that as opposed to if you if you fall away from the game you you just aren't there anymore yeah I think that's it you know and I think that a lot of sort of friendship stories in golf are a bit overdone I think about mm-hmm. Steve and JT and, you know like Arnie and Jack <laughs> uh, I'm not you know I. I I'm speculating now, but I do know that John Rahm like, and Sergio, they were, <laughs> <laughs> but, but Paul and Paul Azinger and Payne Stewart, they were friendly and they did spend a lot of time with each other doing things they each like to do. How's that? Okay. I like it. <laughs> well, okay. So you talk about this life in golf sort of informing this book or, or as a part of the process of writing this book. Why, why pain as the subject? Why did you choose him Uh, based on, you know, you're informed, you follow the game. Why, why choose pain? Is it just the, the, the story when you're going to put this amount of effort and work, you really want to make sure you pick the right subject on the front end. Of course, why did you choose pain as a subject? Um, I, I wish I had a, like a really great answer for this, but I don't. So here's the thing I was, uh, I'd finished with my, uh, Harvey Penick biography and I, swore off another book you know I I did one um it's just a lot of time away from my family I have two young kids I had to give up golf when I did my first book and I was steadfastly against doing another one and then um one night in in uh uh, November of 2017 I'm just like scrolling through the internet and I somehow come upon the final NTSB report on the incident that killed Stewart and and uh, the five others on that plane and it was a fascinating document. Uh, it's like 1,400 pages long. And it's a government report. So there's no story there, but there's a lot of detail. And it was some, was, was, uh, some of that detail had never been reported publicly because uh, it had been released in, uh, let me think about this, 2005, right? Yeah. And the other two books written about Stewart, one by a columnist at the Orlando Sentinel, the other co-authored by his wife, which is kind of like the official account, they were published right after Stewart's death in 2000. So I felt like there was something that, uh, that, uh, that hadn't been reported that, that could be, that's where it all started. Um, uh, when I pitched that to, to my agent, uh, I wanted to write a book. I wanted to write the, I wanted to hang the book on October 25th, 1999 in the window of the four hour flight. And I was going to do a lot of like, uh, digressions and, and uh, flashbacks. My agent's like, eh, it might be a good magazine story, but you really need to find something bigger than that day. And so um, I started thinking about 1999 and I, I, you know, I was thinking about the changes in equipment and the changes in player fitness and diet. And just like a lot of stuff was happening in 99 around golf. Um, that's where the subtitle came from. Yep. Uh, you know, and so, um, and so I would say that, uh, Stuart appealed to me because he lived, a, a, you know, he had this sort of flawed, tragic hero kind of life. He was a real guy with real problems who did dumb stuff that he later regretted. So there's a good life story there that, you know, like a real person. Um, and then this other stuff around golf just made it big enough to, uh, 
turn it into this season narrative. And, and so that's how, that's how it all happened. It was a lot, a lot of collaboration with an agent and, uh, um, and plus I'm from Missouri, I'm from Kansas city. So growing up, like Tom Watson was my guy and I knew of Stuart because he grew up in Springfield, which is way South in Missouri, but, but still I was aware of him. And I thought, well, as a Missourian, you know, maybe, um, there's a connection there too. So there's a bunch of stuff like that. Yeah, talk a little bit about 1999, everything that's going on. I, I, obviously, everybody knows about Tiger, but what else was was happening in the golf world? Yeah, I, that was most fascinating to me. What Andy's getting at that subtitle, yeah. not most, but subtitle. Why is this the year that golf changed forever? I think you get it. Yeah, and and you know, subtitle that that subtitle uh, was wasn't mine. Um, maybe you know, maybe a bit of overstatement. I don't know. Um, so here's, here's what's happening at the onset of 99. Uh, Titleist is testing and getting, the, getting ready to roll out the Pro V1. TaylorMade introduced its, uh, its first hybrid club. Um, uh, there was a generational evolution happening. Um, players born uh, before, say, 1960. Uh, Stewart was 1957. Um, the swingers, guys like Tom Lehman and Mark O'Meara and Hal Sutton and Payne of that generation, they were, uh, they were getting ready to play their last season of relevance in professional golf. Now, I recognize that Hal won the players in uh, the next year and uh, Azinger won in Hawaii the next year, but they had won all of their majors, Right they would never win another major on the regular tour. They were in they their forties. They were in their, they were in their early forties. Right. Andy. And, um, and so uh, that, that's where the kind of the last stand reference comes from. It wasn't just the last stand of Payne Stewart It's the last stand of the guys who grew up learning the game with steel shafts and forged heads and Balata wound balls um, you know, the shapers. And, uh, and so there's this like idea that not just equipment and fitness and diet and agronomy and all those things are changing, but uh, the type of player who rises to the top is starting to change too. I mean, you know, look what Tiger did in 2000, the season after Stewart died, you know, he, he ran the table. It was a brand new game. It's the game that we're watching now and that was a game that was completely unfamiliar to Hal Sutton, Payne Stewart, Tom Lehman, Mark O'Meara. They did not play the, the game that way. You know, they moved the ball. They had to see the shot. Uh, they felt it through their feet. They felt it through their fingertips because they had to. That's when, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming here because I didn't learn with that equipment, but those guys, they grew up with the harshest uh, kind of equipment Um and, and players born after 1960 didn't really have to learn it that way. They, they grew up with more forgiving, technologically advanced equipment. Would, would, so, you know, you've got your, I would say Curtis Strange would be in this, this bucket yes. of players, uh, ben, ben Crenshaw, Tom Kite, and then almost like a transition group would be your Fred Couples, your Davis Love III, and yes. then and then the start of this, this kind of re- – a big change would be your Phil's, uh, your David Duvall, your Tiger. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, so I was coincidentally 99 able to stage 
guys like Phil and Tiger and Duvall against uh, guys like Stewart and, and Lehman and O'Mara. They played on the same Ryder Cup team that year in 99, you know? So it was the last real, like, um, moment of relevance for the guys born before 60, and it was the emergence and the rise of those others. So it was really kind of like a perfect cast of characters. So we, when the golf stopped in March and we did these spotlights, right. And we focused on this era. I think Crenshaw yeah, is probably at the oldest tip of it. And Ernie L is probably the youngest, but I think one thing that we was sort of revealed to us is American golf got a little thin there or the European golf just maybe got really dominant with their big five. I mean, they're the famous five, whatever they call them. Um, I had this more towards the end, but what was Payne's place? We don't need to do a top 10 list or a top five list, but what was Payne's place? Andy referenced Curtis Strange. Where would you put Payne in sort of that era of American golf when perhaps European golf was more dominant or had more at the top of the world rankings, more elite players? Where was Payne sort of, where did he fit in the American golf scene in that transitional phase? That's a, that's a really good question. Um, so, you know, Payne won 11 times, but three of those were majors. Uh, yeah. He, you know, he, he was 42 and he died. So, and debatably, maybe again at the top of his game, confident again, feeling good about his equipment uh, and his swing. So, I don't know. It's a difficult, Brendan, because he, it was cut short. And, uh, but he did represent something you know he had this style this presence this panache uh he was a brand and before you know brands were a thing right in sports sure. he he had a look um he had, he had a, it was really a costume i would say because he didn't he didn't go around town you know to the to the supermarket wearing plus fours it was this thing he wore on the golf course um but, uh, but yeah, like he meant something to people. I, it was inter it's interesting. I did a, um, on my tweet deck, I did a, uh, like a standing, uh, column. Anytime Payne Stewart is mentioned, I, I can find it. Right. Um, and so, um, a lot of times somebody will ask like a poll question on Twitter, who was your favorite player kind of thing. And it's amazing how many people even today, like say Payne Stewart was their favorite player. And uh, it wasn't for his dominance and it was for something else. And uh, I think, you know, people just liked his, his look and his presence and the way he moved through space. And, you know, he just like this, he had this elegance to him um, and he had a silhouette. You could tell Payne Stewart from uh, uh, 300 yards away, not just by his swing, but by the blousing of his plus fours and his flat cap or something. So uh um, it's not so much where he, where his golf ranked, it's just where his presence and his image and his brand ranked, I think. And, uh, I think that he meant a lot to American golf in that way. Do, do you think part of his popularity also came from the fact that he had this human quality, the fact that he, he struggled, you know, he was the Avis early in his career. Yeah. They called him Avis because yeah. he was second runner up to Hertz. Um, you know, he's always runner up in this and he wasn't a robot and he had, you know, he showed frustration and he was, you know, he was very candid with his comment. Do you think that played a big role in his popularity also? I do. 
here's, and also, you know, we're kind of talking around this right now, but um, the manner, you know, the manner of his death uh, and the, the, the timing of his death, just two, a couple of, few months after he won the U.S. Open, he was on the, that Ryder Cup team, even though he didn't really mean anything to the, the uh, point total of the Ryder Cup. Um, he was part of it. He was kind of like the cheerleader. He was like the, the veteran on the team. He had a story. And um, I, I think that resonated with people. And part of that story is, yes, sure, he was knocked around a lot as a young player and had this reputation as a guy who only cared about, you know, making money and not winning tournaments. And then Jack Nicholas challenged him publicly uh, to step up and start winning majors. And then he did, and then he went away. And after the 91 U S open, he had this slump. He won, he won one tournament. It was in 95, the Houston open, but he kind of backed into that because Scott Hope, uh, lost a lot of strokes on the last day on the back nine. So he backed into that win, but you know, he went through this period where he wasn't on TV. He wasn't in the media center because he wasn't uh, competitive. And there was one year, I think he won $125,000 and he thought about giving up golf. He was drinking too much. He wasn't practicing at all. And, uh, and then he, he reemerges again at, at the 98 U S open. And all of a sudden he's back and, um, and now, though, he's a different person. And that, that's really part of the, 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 the story in the book, too, is his kind of evolution as a, as a person. So he had a story. What was, I would say, just in the cursory research, I found him enigmatic. And I know that sometimes connotes yeah. maybe a, a negative connotation, a jerk or something. But honestly, it feels hard. We're all complicated people. But it feels really hard to typecast him or pin him down as some sort of personality type where because it, he evolved in many different ways on the golf course, off the golf course with his relationship with religion, his, his, his moods, his, his approach to the game of golf. Um, how would you characterize that, that evolution? What was he and what did he become? Is it, are you able to even typecast him beyond just sort of evolving and changing? Yeah. Um, and that's really the essence of, of, uh, his life story. So, um, you know, he grew up in as a country club kid in Springfield who had it all, you know, like not, he, he didn't come from a family of, of wealth, but he did have privilege. And he was like a superstar athlete, four-star athlete in high school. You know, everybody wanted to, to be like him. Uh, went to SMU in Dallas, all of that and all of that, that all of that applies. Um, and he was like, you know, a stud and, uh, uh, he used to, he, he was a jerk. And I think that, um, I mean, that, that word was used a lot by people I interviewed, uh, because, you know, it's really not like the worst thing you call somebody, but he was a bit self-absorbed. Um, he wasn't a good loser in the beginning. Uh, wasn't the greatest sport, uh, as a young player, um, did say things that he regretted publicly. Uh, he was impulsive and that's what led to his saying things that he later regretted. Um, didn't, you know, uh, sometimes didn't treat people very well, but he did have the, he had a huge heart and was capable of amazing generosity. He, when he won at Bay Hill, uh, 
in the uh, in the late '80s. He gave the entire the entire winner's check to a hospital in Orlando. Um, so you know, enigmatic, yeah, and, and a little bit unpredictable. Um, what? The, so you mentioned the faith angle, and and we can't ignore that. But I feel that I feel confident in saying, after talking to uh, as many people as I did for this book and spending a lot of time thinking about this story, that that was a bit overdone. Um, I think what happened with the faith angle is that he and Trace, Payne and Tracy sent their kids to a Baptist school in Orlando and they would come home and be like, dad, listen to this lesson I learned today about this particular passage in the Bible. And um, this came at a moment during the slump when Payne, I think, was looking for answers looking for something to hold on to, looking for reasons to have faith in something. And so he sort of latched onto that and he did join a, uh, like a men's Bible study. And when he was in town, he would go to that. Um, he was no like biblical scholar, and, but, uh, but it did matter to him. And he started wearing the bracelet in 99 and then you know, he won twice in 99 and he won a U.S. Open again. And maybe Payne Stewart at this moment is, is sort of making a connection here. Like my commitment to faith, whatever that entails, uh, has somehow translated into uh, success both as a person and as a golfer again. So therefore it matters. Um, I think also he was just growing up. We all grow up at different ages. And I think he was maturing in, uh, in 99 at the age of 42. I also think, I believe 100% that that slump of his between 91 and 98, um, changed him like fundamentally changed him. And, uh, you know, like in the late eighties and the early nineties, when he started, when he started winning in the late eighties and, and kept winning through 99, 91, um, he is everything he wants to be. People are watching him and people are admiring him and he's winning golf tournaments and he's at the top of the world. And then all of that goes away. Right. And so all of this that he has become accustomed to is, is gone. That guy I mentioned, Lamar Haynes, who played with him at SMU uh, kept telling me throughout the reporting of this book that Payne just wanted to be noticed. He wanted to be watched. He wanted to be observed. He wanted to be admired and, and all of that kind of went away in that slump. And I, so I think when he came back in, in 98 uh, and, and uh, placed second at the U.S. Open after leading for three and a half rounds, um, it, it, it all fell back. You know, it was like everything was back again. And uh, I think that renewed his commitment in the offseason to practice harder. He got his equipment straight again and, uh, and then came back and won at Pebble Beach. So, I, you know, I would say all, and I think Paul's cancer. And I think Payne certainly realized what his presence meant to, to Azinger when they were together. Um, and I think it also, uh, I don't think Payne was the deepest thinker in the world, but I think he did start thinking about bigger questions, about mortality, about legacy, about uh, the type of father he was to his kids, about the type of husband he was to Tracy. Um, so I think it's really a confluence of those four things. What were some of the things he said that he regretted or what was one thing he said maybe he most regretted that you referenced? Well, that's hard to say because the only guy who can answer that isn't with us. Yep. Um, but I do think the one that followed him around the most and that really colored his image 
was the 89 PGA championship at Kemper Lakes. And um, so he, he had a, he shot, I don't know what he shot. He had a really great back nine in the last round came in. He was the clubhouse leader and uh, Mike Reed was still out there with, you know, pretty, pretty reasonable chance of winning. And then he started coughing up strokes. And so Stewart is in the scoring tent uh, and there's a camera on him. And um, I mean, this goes to what are, what are our expectations of a golf champion in terms of conduct, right? And countenance and behavior. <laughs> so Payne's like, he's really, Payne did have ADD. He was diagnosed with ADD. So he's like bouncing all over the place, popping grapes. He, this is at the, the time in his career where he's wearing the NFL. Oh yeah, Chicago logo. Bears regalia in, <laughs> exactly. in my hometown. So he's like showing off the logo. And meanwhile, Reed is out there just like vomiting all over himself and losing the PGA championship. As, so as it turns out, Stewart wins. Now, if, it, it, if his conduct in the, in the scoring area wasn't bad enough, he goes into the, goes into the press conference. Um, I don't have the transcripts in front of me, so I'm not going to like pretend to remember exactly what he said. But it was all about him. And like, you know, he even mentioned, uh, and I'm, I'm not sure how sincere this was, he even mentioned something about like praying for his own success that day as Reed's out there hitting balls in the water. Yeah. Um, and the whole tone and the whole feel of the press conference is really off-putting. Like the, even the reporters are feeling like really uncomfortable <laughs> because, you know, Mike Reed had just lost this, this tournament. I mean, Payne Stewart didn't win that tournament. Mike Reed lost it, but Payne Stewart's in the press, in the press conference talking as if he had, you know, uh, just like taken the tournament by its throat. Um, so I think that's the one that really he regretted the most and the one that followed him around the most because it was right there on TV live and, uh, it was just really a bad look. That's something I think a lot about is I, professional golf by nature is a extraordinarily narcissistic um, kind of pursuit. And like what you talked about with the way we expect our golf champions to be is almost, you know, all these guys are very, they, I don't want to stereotype, but you have to be very self-centered to have a very successful career in golf. It's a, yeah. It kind of goes hand in hand. And we want our champions then to be extremely humble and not, you know, proud of themselves after they've just accomplished a incredible individual feat. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And, and, and that's, that's kind of who Stewart had become in 99. Uh, and we, so when he, uh, when he lost the U.S. Open uh, in 98 at Olympic to Lee Jansen, <clears throat> you know, the, a younger Payne Stewart would have uh, like stormed into the interview center, uh, complained about the divot on 13, complained about the, the slope of the, the, the hole cut on Friday, uh, complained about the, the ball that Jansen hit in the tree that magically, you know, fell out and he would have found all of these external reasons to blame for losing. But, you know, he, that day he took full responsibility and 
he had a like a maturity and a perspective that day that people had never seen out of him. So he was showing the world that he was becoming a different person. And then when he won at Pebble Beach early in 99, um, he uh, he told the, 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 the reporters gathered, who many of whom had covered him for a long time, he's, he told them that he now understood their job in a different way and that he recognized that he had treated them badly previously and he was not going to do that anymore, that he respected their jobs. Um, and then, you know, he that, that, the call it, well, I don't know what you want to call it, but that moment at Pinehurst on the 72nd hole when he holds the putt and he goes over to Phil and he puts Phil's face in his hands and he tells Phil, you know, this isn't the important thing. You're going to be a father. That's the important thing. You're going to have your chance to win this. Joke's on Phil. Here we are all these years later, six runner-up finishes. Um, but that's showing the world too. Maybe, you know, do you want to call it grace? Um, compassion, um, humility, even, I mean, all of these words that you'd never attach to Payne Stewart, all of a sudden they're in play now in 99. And then I think the, the, of the four moments that season that matter the most, the Ryder cup and his concession to Colin Montgomery. I, I just love that moment. You know, I know the match was meaningless on the, 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 the U S had already won. But, uh, you know, Mike Hicks, who was Payne's caddy for, for most of his career, was very helpful with this book. And, and every time Hicks and I talked about this, Hicks would fall silent, shake his head and say, you know, that is not the Payne Stewart I thought I knew. That moment, that concession. And it was completely spontaneous. Hicks, uh, Stewart didn't mention it walking down the 18th fairway. It was, you know, it, just, it came from within. It wasn't anybody else's idea. It was, it was Stewart's alone. Um, and I just love that moment. And one of the, one of the, one of the more memorable interviews I did for this book was with Colin Montgomery and his agent promised me that I could walk one hole at a practice round with Montgomery in Houston. Uh, we ended up walking five holes together. It was, excuse me, Andy, it wasn't a practice round. It was a pro-am. I mean, you know, I recognize that's valuable time for pro-am <laughs> participants Montgomery realized that, but man, like listening to Montgomery recall that day and, and uh, just like what it meant to him. I don't know. I just love that moment a lot. So it feels like we've spent a lot on um, who we have, how we evolved as a person, right? We're talking 89 PGA, 99 um, US Open, 99 concession to Mon Monty. Where was this game at the start of 99? From just, again, the cursory research, it felt like he was much more his game flowed much more from mental changes as opposed to mechanical changes. Um, but I, I would lean on your expertise here. Where was his game at the start of 99? He, he popped up, you mentioned at Olympic in 98. How, where, where was he feeling in terms of his golf, his equipment, all that starting in, in 1999, what would be the last year of his life? Yep. Yeah, he was good. His, the shape of his game was good. Um, so he made this really disastrous decision. Um, after, sorry. After he won the U S open in 91, he, he did like the Rory McIlroy thing. He changed ball and club, right? Um, he went from a forged blade to a cast cavity back. Uh, <laughs> he went from a wound ball to a solid core ball. And, um, you know, no big surprise, it didn't work out so well for him. But his teacher, Chuck Cook, who lives in Austin, is a longtime acquaintance of mine. Um, I remember him telling me how, you know, Stewart didn't know whether his eight iron would go 135 yards or 170. Like, how do you play tournament golf? with that kind of doubt. So uh, 
he got out of his, his equipment, con- it, it expired uh, after the 98 season. And so um, now he could play whatever he wants. So he got his old Mizuno blades back, the ones that went down with him in the Learjet. And, uh, and then in, um, he went back to a Titleist wound ball. The, uh, yeah, um, he was playing the professional, I think. Uh, he had a mixed bag. He had no endorsement contracts. So like he and Mike Hicks, his caddy, went to some like golf superstore in Orlando and bought a bag to use that season <laughs> and, and it was playing like an Orlebar three wood Titleist driver, you know, it was like us. And, um, but he felt good about this stuff. And, uh, and then the, the key thing that happened was at Pebble beach in, in February of that year, you know, Hicks finds this um, putter, the Seymour yeah. and like, huh, let's, let's paint. What do you think of this? Paint says, I'll roll it. And, you know, he went out and won the tournament that week. So done deal there. Now he has a putter. So he was feeling good about everything. He felt good about, um, I believe, his life, about his marriage, about his, his family, uh, about his affairs, and about his swing and his equipment. Amazing. Um, why? So you, I guess we'll get into this in depth later, but why is 1999 – one of the greatest U S opens ever. Do you feel, you know, we talked around it a little bit. Yeah. Um, and, and not to put it crudely, is it amplified because of his death later that year in a way it, it, it like in the moment, it was already a great U S open and why, what made it so great. And then was it amplified obviously of what happened later that year? I think, it, I think it became more, I think it's mystique. Yeah. Uh, has been um, sort of bolstered because of his death, for sure. Uh, but also, there's some other factors. So, um, you know, it goes to Pinehurst, number two, um, for the first time. And, you know, this this little village in the Sandhills of North Carolina completely embraced, you know, this isn't metropolitan New York. This isn't Chicago, where they're like, yeah, been there, done that. You know, they had never had something. They had never had a U.S. Open. So there's that. Um, more importantly, you know, let's, if this were a movie, let's look at the cast of characters who's around on day four, uh, Tiger, Duvall, VJ, Montgomery, Phil, Payne. Um, so it's, you know, and all of these guys at some point or another have a chance. And so there's that too. Um, and then let's think about the closing scene. Well, Let's think about the through line here. So Payne and Phil are in the last group. Uh, it's a great day for this kind of uh, memorable championship. It's sort of, you know, loamy and misty and feels a little bit like Scotland. It's kind of cool. Um, the la- so Payne and Phil play. I mean, both of those guys play rock solid golf. Uh, first hole to last. Um, the last three holes are amazing. And this is the closing scene of the movie, right? Uh, Phil takes the lead on 15, on 16, which is a converted par five, long par four. Uh, it looks like Phil's going to seize another shot because he's greenside and two. Uh, and looks like an easy up and down for a four. Payne, uh, 
has, I think it was like 35 feet for par, a double breaker, literally. And I've had, I took, I made, I tried this putt at, at Pinehurst number two, literally three feet one way, four feet the other, downhill. Uh, and he makes it. Phil misses his up and down. Um, now they're tied. They go to 17. And at this point, golf's pretty much done in front of them. So everybody who's been watching the other groups now sort of convenes on 17. So it's become almost this amphitheater of thousands of people. And it's still, and it's gray, you know, and Phil and Payne hit these shots on that par three, like four and six feet. Um, It's loud. The sound is bouncing through the pines. Uh, Payne makes Phil misses one shot lead now. Um, and then they, that just the tableau on 18 with so many people and here's Stewart at 42, uh, who's been absent for all of these years and can he do it? And here's Phil at 29 and is he finally going to do it? Everybody knows Phil's going to win a major, but he hasn't yet. Um, and just the way that it ended, man, uh, I, I, you know, just the stuff of legend, really. In the course of your reporting, you talked, I'm asking you to really speculate here, but where did okay. all those people come from? Like, I, I, I hear these <laughs> anecdotes of like, these are the biggest crowds I've ever seen. Now, I know Raleigh's the metropolitan area that's somewhat close. Is it just everyone in North Carolina <laughs> migrated? Where do those people come from? It's just massive. Yeah, maybe the whole state. I don't know. Certainly <laughs> not the village of Pinehurst. Uh, but um, yeah, I think that was part of it too. It was like people who could go went because they had never seen a U.S. Open at number two. Right. Um, so it was, like, it was like a big deal. It wasn't like going to Wingfoot again or Pebble, even though those are uh, you know great U.S. Open venues. They had never seen um, number two in USGA championship condition. So maybe that was it. I don't know. What uh, what would you say? Another subjective question. What would you say was his best shot in that closing three? Because it's really, you know, we always associate the finishing putt to win the U.S. Open, and that's the one. Um, yeah. You mentioned that save at 16. It was like a 30-footer on top of Phil. Yeah, An incredible Phil said, save. Phil said that might have gone off the green if it didn't go in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 17, he flags it, you know, yeah. he's really tucks it and 18, he gets up and down from 80 yards out. What was the best shot? It was an incredible three hole stretch. What would you subjectively say maybe was the best shot? I think the most meaningful shot was the made putt on 16. Yeah. I really do. Uh, I think if he misses and even if Phil misses, um, the, the outcome might be different, but I, I think making that putt told Stewart something. I mean, you know, like, I think Stewart sort of believed in something approaching fate. Uh, and I think that he thought fate was on his side after he made that putt. You know, I think that I'm, I I know that Andy plays competitive golf. I don't know, Brendan, about you, but no. Okay. <laughs> but so Andy can, I'm sure uh, he's lived this. I think Pain at that moment felt like he was in such complete control that he didn't have to control it. Uh, that he all he had to do was let himself do it, um, which he did. You know, 
he, he won putted the last three holes. And, you know, it's more, more like 55 feet of putts he made in the last three holes. Uh, the, 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 uh, the, co- the, the confidence and the peace of mind that it took to not try to go for the green on 18 and instead wedge out uh, tells me something, too, about how he felt like all he had to do was just let himself do it. He didn't have to force it. He didn't have to try. He didn't have to think about it. He just had to let himself do it. Um, so I, but I, to answer your question, I, I really believe the putt at 16 helped him look at the future holes that way. It listened to it's and knowing as early, you know, the early travails, the temper, everything, the paint Stewart story. And I, I don't want to try and simplify this is really almost like the culmination of a maturation of a man from as a golfer and as a human when you consider you know the Ryder Cup stuff the the family stuff and then you know the it's this is kind of the the moment and even like the the wedging out on 18 instead of trying to push it that's the maturation of a championship golfer you know and then we see on at the Ryder Cup later really you know with what you talked about with uh his caddy talking about like I didn't expect and that was a human thing is is that's what kind of the the charm of the Payne Stewart story really when you think about it is like here this guy got to the really in and it's the tragic aspect of it too is that he was getting to his best self is what what everybody is trying to do with them you know is is that improvement that's that's it I mean what you're talking about now is universal and some, we, it's relatable, you know? Um, and, and when I was talking through this book early before I really got going on it, um, and, you know, it's important for me to talk through it with people, golf people and non-golf people alike, uh, especially non-golf people with this story, because um, I, I, I needed to make clear and be certain of this, that this is a human story. This is like Payne Stewart represented everybody who struggles, who we, you know, I've done a lot of things as a young person that I regret that I wish I could take back, but I can't. So I move on and I try to be better. And I think that's what, what, what Payne Stewart was doing. And then, yeah, like on his ascent, it, 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 it gets cut short. You mentioned the whole, like letting it happen. I, I one thing rewatching the video, I noticed like when the putt goes in at 16, right? And it could have gone like Phil's could have gone off the green. He just sort of is complete. There's full like equanimity there, right? He just yeah. kind of stares, does this little like finger wag. Yeah. And then even on 18, he's like, he's got this up and down. He's sort of just walking with his hands in his pocket. Yeah. What you're describing is sort of a tangible and watching him in, in that reaction to 16. And then certainly on 18 with the open on the line. That's, that's why I think that um, he entered the state of mind after making the putt on 16. Uh, that's, you know, it's really impossible to describe. It's a, it, it's, it's a state of mind. I've, I, I, I've never been in a state of mind like that um, because I don't play golf at that level. But I felt like that putt told him, on 16 told him that all he needed to know about how this thing was going to end. And that's why his reaction, you're right. He wagged his finger. He's chomping hard on the gum. Um, I don't think he's trying to stay in the moment. I think he's truly in the moment. What a, a lighthearted note. Andy, do you have something? You want to go there? Go. 
On a lighthearted note, what, did you find anything out about the rain jacket? I, I think that's another sort of image of the, the championship <laughs> of a legendary day. It started a fashion trend. Why? What was the thinking behind cutting the sleeves off? Well, he, um, he had that thing on at the range uh, before round four, and uh, he felt restricted, felt just a little too tight. And so he had, like, his caddy go get a pair of scissors <laughs> and, and cut off the sleeves. Um, and that's one of the really cool relics. Uh, it's on the wall at, at, uh, in the clubhouse at Pinehurst. Uh, it's right there, you know. I guess USGA is going to make its golf museum there now, so it fits. Um, let me tell you, it just, just occurred to me, but I, I want to share this with you guys, that one of the coolest relics, artifacts that I encountered um, reporting this book. So the walking scorer for the Mickelson-Stewart group in round four still lives in the village. And so I met him in, in Pinehurst. I had no idea he was going to bring this, but he brought the score sheet um, the, the full USGA score sheet where you fill in the circles for each shot and that kind of thing, uh, the hard card, whatever you call it. And, um, and he also brought a picture of the scorecard, of uh, Phil's scorecard. And um, when Stewart made the two on 17, there is a perceptible difference in the pressure Phil started putting on the pencil to write down the numbers. The last two numbers, the two and the four on the scorecard are like six shades darker than the rest of the scorecard. Like, isn't that cool? Like Phil knew it too. It's over. (laughs) That is incredible. That's incredible detail. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, So you talk about Phil. What were the impacts of this day on the next generation? I've read a few more articles and features and oral histories. And I think it was Azinger, Jacobson. I felt like we're sort of overdoing the impact it had on Tiger. Like Tiger was hardened, I think was a quote. Azinger said he never missed another putt for a decade after missing on 17. Phil, <laughs> you know, what was maybe we've took and ran with the narrative of the, you're going to be a father 18 and that's the way pain handled that change Phil forever. I guess, what was the impact on the I next generation with tiger? He missed two putts on that yeah. back nine. Cause he missed the 11, he missed the tap in too. Yeah. 11 and 17. Yeah. yeah. So wh- there was this real cross generational battle here. What mm-hmm. would you say pain fending them off had on Phil and tiger going forward? Honestly, Brendan, I, I don't know. I haven't really given that a ton of thought. Okay. Um, I didn't interview Tiger or Phil for this book. I didn't even try to uh, mm-hmm. because I figured, you know, what can they say that they haven't said already? So I, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. What was Payne's impression of Tiger? Do you know? A, a, in this moment and then certainly after 99 Ryder Cup, their teammates. Yeah. Again, I, I read a quote from, I think it was Azinger said something like, he want, he was happy Tiger was in the mix. Is Payne more of that confrontational player? Like, oh, we got the young hot shot here. Um, this is how I'd want to win or how I want to play this on Sunday. What was Payne's impressions of Tiger at, at, in 99, both at the Open and then after the Ryder Cup? Yeah. Well, you know, I think he recognized him as a, a you know, a generational once uh, talent. Um, and uh, I think he probably marveled at the way he played golf. Um, I, yeah, I do know that, um, 
Yeah, Stuart welcomed him in the mix. Like he, Stuart had something to prove uh, in the final round at Pinehurst. And it wasn't just about the U.S. Open. And it wasn't just about um, that U.S. Open. It wasn't just about I can win a, a U.S. Open again. When he won at Pebble in February of that year at the AT&T, uh, it was a rain-shortened so, uh, event. So uh, canceled after 54 holes, and he happened to have the one-shot lead, so he won. Mm-hmm. And um, he even he, he referenced this uh, a little obliquely in the press conference afterwards at, at, at Pebble that um, he felt like, while legitimate, and he was happy to have the check and the trophy and that sort of thing, the exemption – uh, that uh, it still wasn't a 72-hole a tournament. And uh, I felt, I think he carried that to Pinehurst and he needed to prove to himself, to uh, the world, to t- the Tiger Woods and David Duvall's and Phil Mickelson's uh, of the tour that he still had it, that you didn't need to hit it 320 wildly to win a U.S. Open, you could win it with sort of like craftsmanship and finesse. Um, so I, I, I 100% believe that he felt like he represented something, uh, a way, a manner of playing, and he wanted to prove to everyone who cared that he could, that that could still win a U.S. Open. Do, what do you think it? the the near miss the year before played into it also, where you know he was he four shot lead going into Sunday and and essentially, you know, kind of fumbles it away to Jansen. So when he finished his press conference that Sunday in 98 at Olympic, the last one, uh, he came bouncing down the stairs and Hicks is down there with the bag. Mike Hicks is caddy. Hicks was expecting like a sullen sort of uh, pissed off, uh, moody, Stewart, because that's the Payne Stewart he thought he knew. Well, Payne comes bouncing down the stairs, and Mike's just bracing for, uh, you know, this onset of anger. And Payne looks at him and says something like this, you know what this tells me? This tells me we'll be back. And so, um, yeah, I think that, that that near miss at Olympic had a lot to do with why he came back. Because, you know, he knew he could do it again. And uh, I felt like, I feel like he had a conviction, not just professionally, but personally, that, that uh, things were going to be all right. What made him such a good U.S. Open player? I mean, it's not just the two wins. It was, a, he got clipped by Jansen, not only in 90, 98, but 93. I yeah. think Jansen holed out on him. Yeah. Um, so there were, beyond just the wins, there were multiple very close calls. Didn't really have that at the Masters at all. Yeah. Um, so won a PGA, but why it felt like the U S open was really his championship, even beyond just the wins. Why, why, what made him such a good U S open player versus maybe the masters? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, we go back to the way that he grew up playing the game and the way that he continued to play the game. It wasn't about swinging hard and hitting as far as he, he could, you know, uh, he valued fairways. Uh, he was a straight, he was a straight driver. Um, he was long enough. Um, and, uh, you know, he had just this great, uh, sense this feel um, of how to keep the ball in front of him. You know, he, he wasn't wayward in the way that he played golf. He was a good enough putter. Um, 
he was putting held him back from probably, you know, competing more at the masters, like the mass, the Augusta national really embarrassed him because uh, he, he didn't know how to uh, put those greens. Um, but I think that's it. And I also think that, you know, Stewart was like this super uh, borderline nationalistic patriotic guys, like, you know, pro soldier and pro military USA, USA, USA. And I think that the, the fact that the U S open is the national championship brought out something in him that he couldn't summon on his own. Related to that, what was something particularly poignant or revelatory about the Ryder cup when we're talking about the nationalistic aspect of him, 99 Ryder cup, you know, we're a month before he dies. What was something in your course, you're reporting on the book about 99 that you really struck a chord with you. I like telling this story because it, it, I think I'm pretty sure, like 99% sure that I was the, the, the first one to tell, tell people about it. Um, in that famous Saturday night uh, team meeting. At can, the, can you <laughs> add a little about, detail about that? Famous, but yeah, famous, what happened then? And then what, what did you learn about coming out of that? So um, they're going around the room and okay. players are, uh, you know, sort of speaking from the heart. And um, it, it comes around to Stuart, and uh, Stuart looks at Mark O'Meara, and he says something to the effect of this. He says, Mark, you're so lucky. Your father's still alive. Stuart's father had died many years before. You know, your father your father's saw you win the masters in the British open last year. Like what a privilege that is. I, you know, I hope you're not taking that for granted. And so it wasn't about golf. It wasn't about tomorrow. It wasn't about Europe. Uh, it was about like something very simple and yet significant. And so I just, I, I, I think that too showed that Stuart is starting to think at a different level, you know, um, I just love that little moment, you know, did it mean anything to, in the scheme of things, who knows, but, um, but it was spoken and the guy who spoke, it was Payne Stewart. It's amazing. Yeah. Amazing detail. Did Mark tell you that? Where did you? Mark told me that, uh, layman, I mean, you know, I confirmed it every way I could. So, okay. uh, I, I don't remember. I know Crenshaw told me about it. Uh, Omira told me about it. Hal Sutton told me about it. I don't remember if Leonard or love told me about it or layman, uh, but, uh, but yeah, I heard it many, many different from many different people who were there. We talked about at the beginning, the, 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 the last stand group, right? And was that Ryder Cup some sort of, was there some sort of, I don't know, kumbaya moment? Yeah. What was the relationship there between those two groups? The, 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 the guys born before 1960 and then Duval, Phil, DL3 coming, the, the big hitters at Brookline. What was that? What did Brookline do to that kind of cross-generational divide? Well, you have to remember the conditions going into it because that was the year when the whole pay for play thing blew up. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it was like the younger guys who were, who were saying, yeah, you know, we should be getting something for this and being able to do with it what we want with our charities. And it was the younger, older guys, like even Crenshaw, the captain, more traditionalists who were like, you know, no way. Um, so there was that tension um, between the generations going into it. Um, but yeah, I think all that kind of sort of fell away. And, um, I mean, especially on Sunday, I can only imagine, I wish I had been there. I can only imagine the building feeling on Sunday as the points go up on the board of unity and, uh, 
I don't know, man, like that must have been just like otherworldly uh, to watch that happen. And then, of course, afterwards, you know, uh, everybody's won. Mm-hmm. So were there any comments um, on the record from Payne or those close to him about what did he prescribe for the rest of his career coming out of 1999? What did he say about, you know, floodgates is always a cliche. I, I, he was already in his 40s. What did he prescribe coming out of 99 as national champion, the Ryder Cup, all his games back, he wins a pebble. What did he feel like coming out of Pinehurst? Were there comments about, you know, he's going to his 40s. A lot of players win a lot in their 40s too. What, what did he prescribe for the rest of his career? Not knowing that his life would obviously end. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, this this was uh, sort of before um, we 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 realized that the, the, the your early forties was not necessarily the other side of the peak, right? Um, like like now, somebody winning at forty two uh, isn't all that uncommon, um, except for majors. Payne remains, by the way, the oldest, uh, the only player. In his to win a U.S. Open in his 40s since '99, wow. I think I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, so, but he will, you know, as braggadocious as he could be, um, he didn't really say on the record that I know of uh, that you know he felt like his best golf was to come, that he could win four more majors, uh, anything like that. Um, the you know the U.S. Open in 2000 was going to, to Pebble Beach where even during his slump years, he could count on playing good golf at Pebble. Pebble and Hilton had always brought out the best golf in him. Um, and that's really how he remained financially afloat, I think. <laughs> was, think, was about, having... think about the skills. They're, they're courses that require precision, great iron play. They fit this go. game. And that's why U.S. Open, same thing. You know, it's a it's such a, you know, more of a precision over power, um, golf courses. Do you, listen, Andy, uh, I think they only measured two or three holes in 99 at the U S open. So it's a little bit skewed, but would you care to guess what Payne's average driving distance was in the 99 U S open Two seventy-five. You're over. Oh man. <laughs> it's in the two fifties. I think it's two fifty-three. Wow. Yeah. Now, he didn't hit a ton of drivers, but still. What's amazing is he pumped the past Phil on 16. You know, we talked about 16 ending with that 30-foot putt, and maybe that's you, you said it, opinionated that it's the best shot of the final three. Yeah. I was watching. It was fascinating. He pumped it past Phil. You know, the, the hit bombs king of the modern day. Uh, it just got it past him. It was amazing because I thought Phil uh, Payne wasn't a big hitter. And trying to remember, but it was interesting to watch him get it past Phil on that instance. Well, so, um, yeah, Payne wasn't as long as Phil or VJ or, or uh, Tiger uh, or anything like that. But, um, but he was like 75th percentile his whole career. Okay. So he wasn't short. Um, and he could let it go. And if you think about his action, it's the kind of golf swing that can produce a long shot. You know, it's a long swing and uh, – hinged well. And it's just, you know, a, a, a nice action. He just at that, that week didn't care to. So he hit a lot of those, that Orlamar three wood um, that week with the, you know, the, the, the insistence on keeping it in front of him. How, how can people buy your book? <laughs> 
I, just wherever books are sold. I mean, we're not here to sell my book. I, I appreciate it, Andy, but like it's on Amazon, whatever. Uh, paperback's coming out in November. I guess that's newsworthy. There you go. Paperback coming out in November. <laughs> for, the a holiday, last stand. for the holiday season. <laughs> there we go. I think as hopefully this, just this short interview uh, illuminated that there's a lot of depth here to Payne Stewart. It's a worthwhile read. It seems like listen, pretty fascinating, yeah. like, the larger picture, like you talked about, how golf was changing too, not just beyond Payne's story. Yes. And, and so take my involvement out of it. It's just a really good story. Mm-hmm. It is, you know, it's, and it's good to remember. Uh, it's good to note what was happening in golf at that time. Uh, but, but the most important thing is that, you know, Stuart represented uh, an aspiration in anybody, in all of us, right? That, um, we weren't, we don't have to be the people, the person we used to be that we are, we are able to change for the better. And, um, and that's, a, that's, that's like what it means to be a human. Mm-hmm.